Welcome to episode 22 of Unsween and Unfiltered. Zaina, I've been really, really excited about this episode to have the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Hiba Shahid. I mean, granted, she was all the way in Australia, which was really amazing. And you guys are going to find her accent to be very, very cute. But I've learned so much in this episode. I don't know how you felt about it. I felt embarrassed because there's so much about my body that I didn't know. Like, I'm 26 years old. I feel like I should know why things are going on in my body and the reason that I'm feeling certain pain or the reason I'm feeling certain ways at, you know, the certain time of the month. Like, I was really shocked that I didn't already know a lot of this information. Yeah, and today's guest is Dr. Hiba Shahid. And just so you guys know, she's a specialized physiotherapist for complex female pain and endometriosis. Endometriosis sounds a little intimidating, but you guys, it's more common than we think. It actually happens to one in 10 women. Not only that, but HIPAA provides women's health and pediatric pelvic health services, including, like I said, physiotherapy, exercise, nutrition, that's a big one, um, and pain education. And she, her expertise and passion lies in treating complex pelvic conditions such as like period pain, pelvic pain, sexual pain, vagina. I can't even pronounce this one. And she said it so perfectly. <laughs> I'm not going to try. Let me try. Let me literally try. Because I told her when we were doing this episode, I'm like, hey, but you say it. I'm not going to say it. But it's vaginismus. I think I said it right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're like, I don't know. <laughs> Any other chronic pain and everything. She's also an educator and mentor for pelvic health physiotherapy. Um, like I said, she is in Australia, but she's also international as well. And she has a blog, you guys. It's called The Pelvic expert.com visit it Zena, yes, you loved it. i did i learned a lot just from like reading her blog she makes it so easy to understand very personal and you know? very like put in layman's terms like you don't have to be a med student to understand what she's saying like i understood my body just by reading her articles um and i learned a lot man like i learned the true meaning of pms like yeah. when we talk about pms like we just throw that term like around and you know, oh, she's in a bad mood because she's PMSing. It's like, no, that's don't give not it away. I, I want, mean. yeah, I want There's people. There's just so much in this episode that I was like, oh shoot, that's yeah. why. Because I learned so much, like you said, about PMS, and there's something that was a shocker to me, and I think yes. it was almost like a shocker to you too. We're like, what? I did not know yeah. this about PMS. But you guys, like the first 20 minutes, we get a little bit critical, very analytical. But then when we move on towards like the middle and end of the episode, we really, really talk about just those those questions when in regards to sexual pain i know that's something uncomfortable that you really don't go to a doctor and talk about and then like Zena said there's also that period pain and then the biggest one of them all migraines and headaches like why do we get them where do they come from and of course unfortunately hiba does deal with depression and anxiety but the way she explained it was beautiful but it's also just so sad in a way that this is what she truly experiences so it was interesting to see that from her perspective I love this episode. Yes. I learned so much. I mean, we are lucky that we kind of got a free appointment with the pelvic oh, therapist, yeah, basically. Yeah. And you guys, thank you guys for sending in your questions for Hiba because she did answer all of them. She answered them like in details of what, how you can solve the problems that you guys were facing and any concerns that you guys had. So really, thank you guys for sending in those questions. Yeah, like pH imbalances. Um, if you had a natural birth versus a C-section, does it right. still affect you down there the same way and everything? It, it was great. It was a great episode. And remember episode. to follow us on Instagram at Unsweetened and Unfiltered because we do want to have more episodes like this. And if you guys have any questions about the guests that we're going to have on, remember to follow us so that you can keep up to date about like what the next episode will be. Take advantage, you guys, because it's like it's like a free session yeah. for you. So why not? 
that. How about um, before we dive into the episode, let's dive into our unfiltered advice. Okay, so this question is, Hi, Dunya and Zaina. I recently moved to a new city where I don't know anyone. I don't know how to put myself out there and meet new people and make friends. I am in my late 20s and I feel like most people in my age group already have their friend groups established. How can I beat my social anxiety so I don't end up a loner with no friends? Side note, I love your podcast because it's making this whole new no friend situation a lot easier since I feel like I'm sitting in a room chatting with you all when I listen. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet. That's really sweet. And I've heard that a couple of times and I was like, wow, people actually feel this way yeah. about us. They actually That's like awesome. our voices. Thank <laughs> you. It's really, really nice. Zina, you should relate to, to this. Well, sort of. So I yeah. moved to Chicago from Florida. I knew a few people, right? So I had my in-laws. I had my sister-in-laws. I have my cousin who lives like, you know, 35, 40 minutes away. So I knew some people, but everyone has their own lives everyone already like she said has their friend groups established yeah and for me it was a little bit easier because I was going to school and I was doing internships so I was out there and I was meeting people but it wasn't like friendship friendship it was like classmates that I got along with or people that I did internships with that I really liked but it wasn't like outside of a school type of relationship you know what I mean but when it came to like making friends I felt like social media really did help me I'm going to agree with that because I would have never thought at my age now that I would have made new friends yeah. who I consider like my sisters, like my sisters. Yeah. And I think that whole like people already have their friend groups established, like that whole no, 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 new, it, friends. no new friends. Yeah. Like, that's like, that's BS. I that's don't so believe bad. in that. I'm, I'm over that. Yeah. Like, and you know what? Here's a tip for you. I, this is what I do sometimes, which is very interesting. Like there's some events on Facebook that I see that I'm really interested in going. And you know what? Sometimes your group of friends may not like have the same interests as you. And that's okay. That's totally okay. Some of my closest friends are not into what I'm into. So what I used to do is I would go on Facebook and I'd see which one of my mutual friends, even if they're acquaintances, who is going to this event. And if I see that they're going and it says that they're going, I literally message them like, hey, who are you going with? Do you mind if I like tag along? Please do not be shy to ask people because you are, you're not going to get a no when it comes to like having a mutual friend that wants that's already going to be at the event. They're going to be there regardless. And they're going to say yes. They're going to say, yeah, come along. Right. Why not? But let's say she doesn't know anyone. Like she doesn't have any mutual friends in that city. I still say go to those events. I see. And meet yeah. those people. And like when it comes to social media, you'll always find people that have the same interest as you because everyone is on social media. So if you're into yoga you're going to find a group of people, go to a yoga class. You're going to meet people in that yoga class who you might see every week. And slowly you have conversations and those conversations turn into like coffee dates and suddenly you have a friend. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's something as simple as doing the things that you already enjoy and then meeting people at those things. Because those are people that are going to have the similar interest as exactly, you. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not the end of the world. No matter what age you're at, you're going to make new friends. And I'm telling you, sometimes these new friends are going to be the best friends that you've always wanted. And the reason why I think it's because now you're mature, you know what you want. So the friends you're making right now are the friends that you are choosing. Absolutely. It's not you went to high school and you are stuck with these friends. No, these are people that you actually are choosing willingly. And so that's why it ends up being such a great relationship. So just put yourself out yeah, there. Yeah, but I think when it also comes to social anxiety, it's kind of hard to like to get that like those thoughts out of your head. But I think if you, I mean, if you want to have friends, and everyone needs a friend, 
you know, you can't go through your life alone. You kind of have to like push those feelings to the side. And I know, like I said, it's hard, but like it's better than spending, you know, your Saturday afternoons alone at home. But like you said, Zaina, she's she wants friends. Yeah. So it would be different if she was in a different city and she's okay with being alone and just right, like exactly. No, she wants friends. So I feel like I could see her actually making the effort to do something about it. And sometimes, like you said, it all starts with events. Go to an event or, like you said, go to yoga, go to the gym class, start a kickboxing class. You will be amazed at how many people you will meet there that are like-minded and you will definitely enjoy yourself. So I really hope the best for her because I it's do. really nice to have friends that you can call up and just have a girl's night. To I do honest. too. And also I want to um, say, if we've ever answered your question on this podcast, send us an update let us I would know love that. Yeah, let us know like if how our advice actually worked like let I us never know thought of it yeah, yeah. exactly or be... if it's like no no thank you the advice did not work out at all <laughs> well, let us know so we also know not to give that advice <laughs> to other people <laughs> exactly i would love to see if she actually like you know in a month or two like starts yeah. some class and says yeah i met somebody that would be interesting yeah. so i'm ready to dive in today's episode yes let's do, let's do it let's do it Before we dive into today's episode, we would love to shout out our sponsor, which is FabFitFun. FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box. Guys, you're getting $200 worth of products for only $49.99. Basically, many of the products cost more than the entire box itself, which is crazy, honestly. And you're getting things in beauty, lifestyle, fitness, home, and wellness. So it covers like an entire spectrum of your life. Can I say that I love my Kate Spade uh, lunchbox that I use every day now? What I like about it is you're getting like full-size products. So you're getting like the entire experience of like what that product really is. Because I feel like most products take time for you to start noticing a difference. So um, miss me with the samples. I really want the full size. Let me really indulge in this. I love it. Because you guys, self-care is self-love. And that's how much we want to try to promote it. Because it's all around wellness. Yeah. And another great point of this uh, of this subscription box is that you can customize it. So you're getting products that they know you're going to like. Basically, you feel like it's your birthday four times a year. Yes. Don't you? It's just like a surprise. Like, oh, hey, it's fall. And then you receive your fall box. And I absolutely truly and love it's it it's like a little surprise in the mail like yeah you know it's coming but then it comes and you're like oh shoot these products are incredible and you know our podcast is all about supporting women so what i love about fat fit fun is they try to get all these products from mostly female founded companies and so many of the products are from female founded companies and each season fat fit fun actually partners with a nonprofit to raise funds and awareness so not only are you treating yourself but you're also helping others that's incredible i did not know that but what i also really love about this subscription box is that every season I'm discovering products that I end up falling in love with. My vanity right now is full of products that I've stumbled upon because of that fit fun. So as a reminder, it is a seasonal subscription box with full size beauty, fitness, fashion, and lifestyle products. It retails for $49.99, but always has a value of over $200. But I think we can sweeten it up a little bit more, Zena, don't you think? I believe so. If you use the coupon code unsweeten, fully spelled out, you get $10 off your first box at www.fabfitfun.com. So I definitely think, ladies, it's time for you to treat yourself, get this seasonal box, a little surprise at the door. And like Zaina said, you get a coupon code that is unsweetened, fully spelled out, $10 off, and you can go and get your first box at www.fabfitfun.com. And please share your photos with us. We can't wait to see it.
Hello, Hiba. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Australia. We're going to start off with why you chose this profession as a living. And if you actually want to talk about your title and what you are and coming from a community where I don't want to say we're so ashamed about talking about our bodies, but we're not very open and comfortable about talking about our bodies. Hi, Dunya. Hi, Zaina. It's so good to be here. I'm so excited. Um, so yes, my name is Heba Shahid, and my background from a professional sense is in Australia. I am a physiotherapist, but I work in an area called pelvic health or women's health um, or pelvic floor health. Initially, I wanted to become a physio. I don't know why. I just in, in high school, I don't even know how we make a choice about what we're going to do for the rest of our lives when we're only teenagers. But anyway, um, so I went to uni and physiotherapy is a four year degree. And all throughout my degree, I'm like, what am I doing? This is so boring. I don't, you know, I, I wasn't really like really super motivated about it. But, you know, I'm a, I guess, a studious sort of person. So I just, you know, went through with the degree, passed and everything. And then in my first year out of university, or as you guys call it there, I think college or something, started working in the hospital system. So um, you have a choice here if you want to go into private practice or if you want to work in the hospital system. So I decided to, all right, I'll just give it a go. I'll see if I like um, working in a hospital. And what happened was I injured myself really severely in my first three months um, out of university. So in the hospital I was going to go help a guy kind of stand up. It was aged care. He had dementia. And then instead of going up, he kind of slammed himself down. And my pelvis just went like that. And, you know, I kind of went into like a rotation. Um, And then after that, like, you know, the next, like, I I was pretty like active at the gym and everything as well. So I went, you know, I'm like, oh, I probably just like pulled a muscle or something. You know, I'm a physio, but I didn't really think things through. Um, Or a physical therapist, as it's known in the States. And so I went to the gym, running, weights, you know, all that stuff. I was a bit hardcore back then as well. So I used to do like what they do in CrossFit today is to kind of do it back then. The next morning I woke up and I couldn't move. Like I had this horrific pain in my pelvis, down my legs, nerve pain, my back. And I was just like in this like state of inflammation. Anyway, that was kind of the beginning of what, you know, me kind of tuning into my pelvis. But then, you know, it was kind of a journey after that, trying to find someone who could help me. Um, And I was having a lot of pain and the pain was like pretty excruciating pain, like a very, you know, like think really high inflammation, just a lot of pain continuously. And it was months before I finally found someone who was kind of a bit more expert in the pelvis. Even then, like even even though she was able to help me to an extent, a lot of my pain still didn't go away. And the problem with that was she was a general musculoskeletal orthopedic or physical therapist, and she didn't look at the pelvic floor at all, okay? So she was kind of looking at the pelvis from an external sort of lens. And even though it did help, and by help, I mean I went from not being able to walk. Like I couldn't walk. I was on crutches, and I couldn't even walk. For like nine months later, I was finally able to walk. Like it took that long. It was like six months of not being able to walk, like when we look at my scans, like MRI, you can see my right leg was literally like 50% muscle mass of my left leg. It had completely wasted away. It was like, it was pretty horrific. Like when I think and look back, I'm like, oh my God, like how did I even survive back then? How did I live through this and keep carrying on and keep trying to find answers? So yeah, I saw this physiotherapist. She was able to help, you know, I started doing muscle strengthening stuff and she had a a kind of approach where, you know, you've got to work on your pelvic floor. You have to strengthen your pelvic floor, do kegels, squeeze, 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 which is kind of the general 
type of um, attitude today that a lot of um, people have. Like, oh, you know, you, everyone needs to squeeze their pelvic floor. Like everyone's pelvic floor is weak. Everyone needs, you know, has bladder issues and stuff like that. So I need to work on squeezing. So that was kind of her approach. I tried to get back to work and I went into private practice at that point. Every time I tried to do a bit of physiotherapy on other people, I would re-injure myself. So it was like layer upon layer of injury and re-injury. So what I did was I was like, okay, what am I going to do with this degree that I just spent thousands of dollars on and I spent four years of my life and then, you know, it's like it's it's a lot of work, right? So um, I then went online to try and find some, you know, what other areas of physiotherapy can I work in? And then I just happened upon this course called um, Introduction to Women's Health, right, in physiotherapy. I'm like, oh, okay, I haven't done this before. All right, why don't I give it a go? It was a five-day long course. So I went and I did this five-day long course and the thing with when you get like information overload and this I think we're going to talk about this later on is like headaches and migraines but yeah it was way like information overload. A, a completely new area of physiotherapy that I hadn't you know looked into at all. So then um, yeah I, I started working in that a little bit and over time I started to see a connection because that's what women's health is. Women's health is all about the pelvic floor okay. Um, I started to think about a connection between my pelvic floor uh, and, and what was happening in my body. And then I was like, All right, you know what, I'll go and see a women's health physiotherapist. So then I went to see her. And initially I went to see her for bladder problems because I had had a lot of um, bladder issues. But I was kind of like, you know, she might also have an idea about what's happening with my pelvic pain as well. So I was still having pelvic pain on a daily basis, but I was still working through it. Like I was like, you know, I probably had like eight to 10 out of 10 pelvic pounds, pretty bad. But, you know, you just shut it off and you just get on with it sometimes. You know, some people like can't, you know, can't get on with it. But with me, I'm like, I, I'm not going to just sit at home and lie down in bed all day. Like, I'm just going to work and do stuff and just live with this pain and just whatever, you know. And so I went to see this physiotherapist and she's talking to me and I'm talking to her. And I'm telling her my history. And even though I went to her for bladder issues, like problems with um. So here's the thing. A lot of people think only old ladies get bladder control problems that you only accidentally lose control of your bladder if you're like old and have had kids and stuff. But that's not how it happens. So I had had urgency and like busting to go feelings and like bladder control issues since I was a kid. And, you know, I just grew up with that was kind of what happened to me. Um, so I went to her and I kind of gave her this big history about my life, which is kind of like what I'm talking to you guys about. So I went to her and then she's like, you know, you, you're ticking all the boxes of endometriosis because I haven't like, I haven't even talked to you guys about period pain, but my periods when I first started menstruating were like, Oh my God, off the charts, like just really horrific period pain, you know, like, but I would still go to school and I would still do, you know, go do, do my work and do everything. But I would just live with this. Like, it's like, you just, you have this, you know, enormous amount of pain, but you just kind of deal with it. Um, and I think a lot of women do do that, especially in today's society. Um, we just like put, we just shut our pain down. So anyways, I had all these symptoms of what was called endometriosis. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on as well. But then now we have this like really complex thing of like, okay, she's got period pain, she's got bladder pain, and then bowel issues. And then she had this musculoskeletal injury as well. So you had this like really, really complex kind of pelvic pain. And, it, and I'm only kind of touching on the little bits and pieces. But this is kind of what I do now when I see women is I see women who come to me after having seen so many different therapists, so many different doctors, so many different health professionals and medical professionals and alternative professionals, like just so many people having had this long history of a lot of different things happen around their pelvis. 
But then something was like the big trigger for it. But then they come to me um, and they're like, you know, oh, I have endometriosis. They might come to me for that. But then when we talk about it, it's like this long history from like, oh, yeah, when I was five, this happened. And when I was 10 and I got my periods, that happened. And when I, you know, and you see it becomes this long thing of what we call, you know, quote, complex pelvic pain, unquote, right? So it's not as simple as we like to think. And you guys are probably like, oh, my God, I think I'm a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> but um, that's what it is. It's pelvic pain is not simple. Um, it's never just one thing. It's always a lot of things. And that's because there's a lot of nerve supply. There are a lot of organs down there. There's a lot of muscles down there. Um, and there's a lot of feelings as well. Like our thoughts and feelings affect what happens in our pelvic region. Okay. And as females, especially, we can have, and you touched upon, you know, things being a bit taboo in our culture, you know, that those things also impact on what's happening in our pelvic floor. So long story short, it started as um, I didn't know what I'm doing to, uh, okay, I can't treat people anymore. So what, do I, what am I going to do? So then I did this women's health course. And then I learned about myself through, through learning about, you know, through going to a physio myself, a women's health physio myself. And then after that, it was just a massive exponential learning curve for me. I went and did every single course available on pelvic health. And that's when I'm like, this is my passion. This is what I really want to do. I could feel it in myself. Like, and I didn't, like, I knew what it was like to go from 10 out of 10 pain to zero out of 10 pain. And this is 10 out of 10 pain for like years. I was in pain for years on a daily basis. Today, I barely have any pain. It just comes and goes, you know, if I'm really stressed or something. So I know what it's like to go from like really, really bad to, okay, I can, you know, I don't even have to think about my pain anymore. And I can help other women get to that point. And that's what, that's kind of what I, my mission is now. It's like, okay, get the education out there, teach people, you know, you don't have to live with these issues. It's not something, you know, it's not in your head. It's not, um, you're not making it up. Uh, it's real. And there is a way out. You don't have to live with it for the rest of your life. And so, yeah, that's kind of what brought me to what I do today, which is um, I work in private practice here in Sydney. And I only see women who have pelvic pain and sexual pain. That's kind of all I see. I don't really see weak pelvic floors and new mums and all sorts of stuff like that. I just see pain, um, which is kind of a specialty upon itself in women's health. But yeah, I, I did set up an online kind of blog where I tried to get as much information about women's health out there as much as possible so that women could get educated, society could get educated, and you know we can start to take back our health and start putting you know, our wellness in our own hands instead of just, you know, living with it. You're absolutely right about that because I feel like, I don't know if you agree with this, Heba, but we do normalize our pain. We think that oh, yeah, this, is, this is normal, this is okay, but it's you should not be experiencing no pain within your body and you should check it out. But I think as women, we are hesitant when it comes to our private area somewhat. And we feel like, oh, I'm a little anxious. I don't want that to be checked out or whatnot. And you did mention pelvic floor a couple of times. Can you let our listeners know what a pelvic floor is exactly and what it consists of? Yeah, so your pelvic floor is a series of muscles and layers of connective tissue, which is kind of like elastic tissue in your body. And nerves, there's a whole bunch of nerves there as well. And all, all of this together, and bones, so we think of thinking about our pelvis as well, all of these together make up your pelvic floor. So a lot of people, when they think pelvic floor, they often think about the Kegel muscles, which are the muscles that when people imagine pelvic floor, they imagine this one muscle 
that goes from the pubic bone to the tailbone. That's kind of the picture that most people have in their mind when they think that, if they even think that at all. But the pelvic floor, if you're thinking about it, it's, it's a web of muscles and connective tissue and nerves. And the pelvic floor muscles themselves, the muscles, there's a whole bunch of them. Okay, so it's not just this one little muscle, it's actually layers of muscles. What type of issues can arise when someone has an issue with their pelvic floor? So there's heaps of issues. So if you think about um, the pelvic floor, it supports your pelvic organs. So your pelvic organs are your bladder, your uterus if you're female, and your rectum. And so if you think about all the issues that could potentially happen around there, the pelvic floor is very often involved. So pelvic pain is definitely one of them. And pelvic pain is the umbrella term that we use to describe any type of pain that arises in the pelvis. So that could be bladder pain, which is what I had since a young child. And that's also known as painful bladder syndrome, bladder pain syndrome, interstitial cystitis. You might have heard these terms floating around. And then you can have uterus-related pain. So that's usually endometriosis. Um, but the thing with endometriosis, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, is it's not limited to the uterus. It's actually outside of the uterus. But it is governed by the action of your reproductive system. And then you can have a condition called adenomyosis, which we can talk a little bit about later on when we start talking about endo. And then you can have bowel-related um, pain syndrome. So you can have um, irritable bowel syndrome. You can have Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease. Chronic constipation is a big one that I see in my practice. So in my practice, the most common things that I see are endometriosis or period pain related issues. So period pain is, of course, another pelvic pain um, issue. I see chronic constipation and chronic constipation that can start in adulthood, but most often has started from childhood. And just to clarify, constipation in my, the, when I talk about constipation, people should be going every day to empty their bowels and it should be like a long, smooth sausage when it comes out. So if you're like little pebbles or it's really clumpy and hard to get out or you're sitting there for 20 minutes, half an hour to get it out, that's constipation. If you're going only twice a week or three times a week, that's constipation, okay? Constipation, if, you, if you're not going every day with a long, smooth sausage, you're likely constipated. So that's often what I see in my clinic. And then the other thing, of course, is sexual pain. So that's pain that you get with any type of intimacy. And there's a few different types of that as well. So um, the umbrella term for sexual pain, some people may have heard of it, but most people haven't, is dyspareunia. But then the most common one that people have heard of is vaginismus. And vaginismus is tightness of your pelvic floor muscles right at the entrance of your vagina, such that it's painful to have penetrative sex or you can't have penetrative sex at all because um, the muscles just block you. And it could be any type of penetration. So it could be tampons, it could be vibrators, dilators, penises. It could be anything that goes into your vagina and you feel a pain or a discomfort or an inability to insert something into your vagina. That's um, vaginismus. So I see that a lot in my clinic as well. So painful sex is definitely something I see a lot in my clinic. Um, what else can happen around the pelvic floor? Okay, so those are the pain stuff. Then apart from pain, you can also have um, weakness issues. So you can have things like I'm losing control of my bladder. I'm losing control of my bowel. So urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, um, pelvic organ prolapse is another one that happens a lot. So that's where the organs in the pelvis start to sag down. And this usually happens due to um, childbirth. So if you pushing, you push the baby out of there, out of your vagina, 
the organs can kind of sag down in your pelvis a bit. But people who have chronic constipation can also develop pelvic organ prolapse as well because of that, it's that constant straining and the constant straining that happens during childbirth and, of course, with constipation. But um, I guess the way that you would want to think of it is if you have any bladder problem, any bowel problem, any vaginal, uterine problem, so anything around the pelvis, a pelvic floor or women's health physical therapist will be able to help. I have a question about like the tightening of your muscles. Like, how do you know, other than having sex, how do you know that your muscles down there are too tight? So the main symptoms of um, a, a pelvic floor that is too tight is things like, okay, I can't get a tampon in. It hurts or it's too tight. If you're sexually active, you're having pain or discomfort or tightness with sex. The other thing is sometimes people have this generalized pelvic pain or hip pain that just doesn't seem to go away. They've tried everything. They've tried chiropractor. They've tried osteopath. They've tried physical therapy. They've tried exercise. They've tried everything. But this hip pain and this pelvic pain is just not going away. It's likely that one or many of the muscles in the pelvic floor are tight. And you would need to have an internal examination. That's what happens when you see a pelvic floor physical therapist is we do internal examinations. We, tr- we look at your uh, vagina and we, if, if the rectum is involved, sometimes we look at the rectum. But they have um, internal exams to actually assess the muscles. So to us, it's just like any other part of the body. The vagina is just a set of muscles to us, right? Like a lot of people do have this like, oh, this taboo, you know, it's a private part, whatever, all that sort of stuff, which of course, you know, is valid. However, from a professional point of view, we look at it as, you know, just another part of your body. And so that's how we assess it. And the only way to assess your pelvic floor muscles to really know if they're tight is um, through an internal vaginal examination. So symptom-wise, like I said, some of the symptoms of a tight pelvic floor would be things like inability to insert anything into the vagina because of pain or discomfort or tightness. And the other thing is, um, which is a very common one, which was what set me off into the journey to discover what is going on with my pelvic floor, is urgency. So busting to go to the bathroom, really need to go, can't, can't hold it. That feeling, that really strong urgency feeling, that can be a symptom of a tight pelvic floor because the nerves are kind of getting stuck inside the tight muscles and then sending off this like wave of, oh my God, I can't control my bladder. And then you might actually lose control of your bladder. So it's not that your bladder is weak or that your pelvic floor is weak. In this instance, it could be that your pelvic floor is um, too tight. And so it's causing you to just lose control. That's interesting because like I feel that way. Zena, every time I come to Zena's house, I have to use the washroom yeah. and I do drink a lot of water. But Heba, I used to always drink water and I never had this issue until recently, like maybe in the past two years, I felt like I have to use the bathroom. Like I have to go right now. Like it is that sense of urgency, but I never thought it would be to that extent where it might be that pelvic floor issue. How do you treat that? How do you help people with that bladder issue or that pain down there? Yeah, so in my office, um, when people come to me, obviously I want to you know I want to learn everything about everything I can about them so I ask them I take a very long history sometimes like 30 or 45 minutes just learning everything I can about them and then when we do the vaginal exam we actually assess the muscles so I will use my finger gloved obviously and feel the muscles are they tight or are they short or what's happening in them and usually when I touch them the, it's painful and they will tell me yeah that's painful or that's tight um, or you can just see that visible discomfort. Um, and so, you know, that's a confirmation for me that the muscles are tight. And the work that I do is kind of multi-pronged. So 
some of it is like massage techniques. So like, you know how if you have like a really tight neck, you'll go and get some deep tissue massage to just help and unwind the neck, you know, to make your feel, shoulders feel a little bit better. We kind of do a similar type of massage, like a deep tissue almost massage inside the pelvic floor um, to try and unwind and lengthen the muscles as much as possible. But then there's other things that we do as well. So uh, things like teaching women to drop their pelvic floor, let it go. So instead of it being right up here, okay, just drop it down, widen it out, let it kind of unwind and drop out. And sometimes they can't do that when their muscles are stuck up here. And that's why that massage is really important. But once that, you know, the muscles come down, we start to um, teach them, you know, what we call pelvic floor drops. So instead of squeezing the pelvic floor, you're letting go. Um, a lot of relaxation work, a lot of work around desensitizing their nervous system. So I know a little bit of your background. Like I know that you've had migraines and stuff in the past. So in my mind, I already know that, and that's something just from gathering from little bits and pieces that I've heard or read, that you, your nervous system is very wound up. Okay, so a lot of the work that I would do with someone who also presents with nervous system issues like migraines or, you know, sciatic nerve pain or something like that is um, working on desensitizing the nervous system. And there's a few different things that we can do. So sometimes it's like certain um, yoga stretches, which help to allow the nerves to move a bit better. It could be, um, you know, meditation, relaxation techniques. It could be... Um, uh, something called TENS, so transcutaneous electrical muscle stimulation. So it's like, I don't know if you've seen it, but sometimes people, they have these little patches that they put, you know, if they're in pain, they put a, they put these little patches on their neck and it sends like little electrical pulses yes, into yeah, their yeah. neck. And then, yeah, so you can do the same thing, but inside your pelvic floor. So you can do stuff like that. So there's, there's a massive toolbox of things. And exercise is definitely part of it as well. We're trying to get those muscles to stretch, relax, unwind, all of that. Um, we do something called nerve flossing techniques, which is trying to get the nerve to move through the tissue um, without being stretched and uncomfortable. So there's heaps of different things that I do. And a lot of it as well is education. So educating them about pain, why you are in pain, what happens to your body when you're in pain, how can we bring that pain response down just by understanding what pain is. Because the research all shows that understanding pain reduces pain. It's so interesting because I don't think a lot of us even realize how important and vital the pelvic floor is and how how much it impacts our body. Um, I want to move on to period pain. I think a lot of women think that period pain is supposed to be extremely painful and we kind of um, self-medicate when it comes to like our periods. But can we talk about what normal periods should feel like? The misunderstanding around period pain is crazy. Like what we put ourselves through and accept for ourselves and tell ourselves is normal is just mind-blowing. So let's talk about what a normal period is. So a normal period should not be excruciatingly painful. So let's make that clear. Anyone who tells you that period pain is normal is 100% wrong. Okay, period pain is absolutely 100% without a shadow of a doubt, not normal. When you first get your period, you may get some mild cramps. Okay, so you might get a little bit of mild cramp. You know, it's like someone squeezing your arm, just squeezing your arm a little bit, like just squeezing it a little bit tight. And that's because your uterus is getting ready to squeeze out some blood. So you might have a bit of mild cramps, which will feel just like someone's just squeezing your arm. It shouldn't feel that painful at all. As you're going through your period, 
um, you may feel like a little bit of maybe some heaviness of your pelvis and maybe just some like a mild sensitivity. But most people don't feel anything at all. Most people who have healthy periods don't feel anything at all. They're just aware perhaps that, you know, something's coming out of their vagina. But if you're wearing a tampon or a cup, you might not even be aware of it at all. You know, the first day might be when you would have these um, mild cramps. Maybe the second day you might have a little bit of a dull ache, okay? But then after that, it should be relatively pain-free. It should feel like, like nothing. It's just your body's trying to get rid of anything that's left over um, in those uterine walls. You know, once your period is done, obviously you should have no pelvic pain at that point. When you ovulate, which is usually about two weeks before your next period starts, some people might feel a little bit of a twinge, okay, but it should not be painful again. You might feel a slight twinge as the egg bursts out or whatever, and the, or, or the follicle rather. And then um, in the week before your period, so seven to 10 days before your period, you'll start to tell that you're, go you're going to have your period, but you should not be experiencing any strange extreme symptoms. If you are, then this is what's called PMS or premenstrual syndrome. Ideally, a healthy period is just mild cramps, a little bit of, you know, dull ache, but then you forget about it and, you know, that's it. But unfortunately, that is not the case today. We have so many women who are experiencing excruciatingly painful periods, periods that could um, be, you know, before the period even starts, they feel this enormous amount of pain, Right. And when the period starts, the first few days are really painful. Some people might feel pain throughout their entire period. Some people feel extreme pain at ovulation. You know, it, we have this real pain problem happening with our periods right now. Um, and, you know, it's going, it's getting worse and worse. And because there are so many people who have such horrible periods, because it's common, right? Because it's common, we suddenly we exchange the two words, common equals normal. But that's not it. It is not normal. Cancer is common, but cancer is not normal. Okay. Period pain is common, but period pain is not normal. Okay. And the other thing is the length of your period. Periods should be about three, seven days maximum. We're now seeing a lot of people with extended periods, 10 day periods, 12 day periods, 30 day periods. It's crazy. Okay. So what's a healthy period? Short, light, very minimal pain. If you're not having that, your period is not normal. Wow, that's like, okay, so I think I have a normal period, which is good. Zena, what about you? I do get some pain. Um, I feel like as I got older, the pain kind of went away. But I remember when I was in college having to stay home a few days because like I couldn't it was just too painful. Wow, yeah. that's interesting. And then going back Hiba, to PMS. Okay, I just learned this recently and it's so embarrassing because but I think it's what we're exposed to and all this misinformation that we're exposed to. But Hiba taught me that PMS occurs before your period, not during your period. So do you, you cramp before your period? No, but that's what, no, what I'm trying to say is like, that's what PMS is. PMS yeah. does not happen during, like, you know how some people are like, oh, you're PMSing because you're on your period. But Hiba, can you like debunk that, please? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know how like people are like, oh, what are you on your periods or something? Yes. And you're like, you get so angry and you're like, no, I'm not on my periods. But that behavior that you might be having, which is that, you know, quote unquote PMS, is actually in the week before your period. I mean, that's why it's happening. You know, that you're behaving in a certain way, which is premenstrual syndrome, um, but your periods haven't started yet. But people think that you 
get PMS symptoms when you're actually menstruating, when you're actually bleeding. But that's not, that's not what it happens. PMS symptoms, which can be physical symptoms like cramps, which Zaina mentioned, or it can be mood-related symptoms or mental men, uh, psychological symptoms, which is the more common one. It's like when you're more irritable, angry, depressed, you know, your, your mood just goes into that, um, you know, like it, you, it feels like your body's a bit crazy, like your body's kind of like, you know, just like vibrating too much or something. And you're just like, I'm just not, I don't feel good, you know? And then once your period starts, any of those PMS symptoms should just dissolve. Like you should not be crazy moody and all that on your period. Obviously, if you've got extreme period pain, you're not going to be happy, like obviously. But when a woman has, you know, PMS-like symptoms outside of that week before her period, it's likely she has another syndrome or another disorder or whatever it's called um pmdd so it's menstrual dysphoria disorder okay so it's where you feel this um physical and psychological symptoms throughout your cycle not just in the week before your period that is so interesting i don't know i i hope i'm not the only one that didn't know that pms or doesn't occur like i really thought it occurs while you're on your period because it, that's what yeah, i was taught. but it makes sense because how many times in your like i've noticed one time where you like i just started crying and then next day i realized oh i got my period and it happens to me where like i'll get angry at like the stupidest tiny little things and the next day i'll wake up and i'm like that's why like that's why i was so like like uh emotional yeah, it that's, makes sense. It, it makes total sense. Like I, and you know what? As women, we don't think about our bodily functions. We don't. We just think, oh, it's my period. It's that time in the month. That's it. You get it over with, and you move on. But you really don't assess how you feel before, during, and after. And I think that would have been great to be able to like educate ourselves about our bodies before we move on. Hiba, we have a few listener questions or questions from our listeners. Um, one of them is, what do does natural delivery and a C section have the same effect on your pelvic floor? Uh, no, they don't actually have this, um, the same effect. Um, when you give birth through your vagina, your vagina undergoes um, a lot of stretch. Um, so the muscles of your pelvic floor need to stretch a lot. And so women who have a vaginal birth are more likely to get things like pelvic organ prolapse because of that stretch of the muscles and the tissue down there. Um, some people can also get little minor they, they might get tears in their pelvic floor if you give birth vaginally as well. So just like, you know, if you have like a sports injury, if you overstretch a muscle, you know, in baseball or something like that, you can injure your shoulder. You know, the same thing kind of happened in your pelvic floor from childbirth. Women are also more likely to get things like uh, stress incontinence, so leaking with coughing, sneezing, laughing, jumping, running, that type of thing. But women who have cesarean sections, uh, they can still get pelvic organ prolapse, but we often see that it's usually uterine prolapse because what happens is when they go in and they cut through the tissues in your abdomen and the muscle in your abdomen it obviously will impair the integrity of your tissue around your uterus and so your uterus can sometimes prolapse from that as well um, but more often we see with cesarean section um, issues of tightness so the the you know once your c-section scar heals and thing you get a lot of um, tightness around that c-section so a lot of um people can often get tightness of their pelvic floor because everything kind of tightens. So we off, I mean, it's not the same. It's not, it's not a rule, but as a trend, we see more tightness of the pelvic floor with cesarean section or, or nothing at all, no change at all. Um, and with childbirth, we often see more bladder, bladder issues and prolapse issues. So for, because we had another question, like after you give birth, do you suggest that they do see somebody like you 
to help them out down there if they feel like a little bit different. I mean, that's like the best way to take care of yourself after you've given birth in regards to our body down there. A hundred percent. I believe that every single woman that gives birth either vaginally or through a C-section must have a pelvic floor or women's health physical therapy or physiotherapy assessment done at about four to six weeks postpartum if you've given birth vaginally or six to eight weeks postpartum if you've given birth through a cesarean section, okay? Because nobody's going to look at your pelvis and your abdomen to such a degree, to such an expert eye like a physical therapist who specializes in women's health does, okay? Not even your gynecologist, not even your general practitioner, physician, whatever, nobody. I I can tell you this with 100% certainty. So please see one. And it's never too late. If you gave birth 20 years ago and you'll still still think you have issues from that birth you gave 20 years ago, we can still help you. I see women in their 80s and 90s sometimes, well, not today, not anymore, but when I used to work um, before I specialized in pelvic pain. You know, we see women through, through every age, okay? So it doesn't matter and you can, it's never too late. The research shows that with eight weeks of help with a physical therapist who specializes in women's health pelvic floor, you can often resolve most of your symptoms. So yes, please see someone. Yeah, so, and before we move on to the next topic, when it comes to sexual pain, that is something that can be treated and it can help a woman again to not feel pain down there when she does, you know, does have sex. Absolutely. So if you have pain with sex, the only person who can help you release those muscles is a pelvic floor physical therapist. You can go to all the psychology in the world, but if your muscles are tight, if your actual muscles are restricted, mental health professionals will only be able to help you with the emotional symptoms associated with that, but the physical symptoms of tight pelvic floor can only be helped by seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist. So please, absolutely, and that's what the research shows. If you have pain with sex, you must see a pelvic floor physical therapist. Of course, if there's emotional and mental health issues arising because of that, relationship difficulties that arise because of that, then yes, a sex therapist or a mental health professional can also help, but you absolutely need physical treatment. Thank you about that. Honestly, that like opened up my eyes to so much. Like I never even knew a pelvic expert even existed. Like, yeah, you'd think to just go see your primary doctor or a gynecologist or anything like that. But that's very interesting. It is. Absolutely. And we kind of touched base on like painful periods. But when do you know when the pain is too much? Like what's the next step? If you're if you're having symptoms of like my cramps are really bad. I'm always PMSing, quote unquote. Like when when do you seek professional help? Yeah, so, I mean, the the type of people that we see with extreme period pains these days, a lot of them, you know, they have really crazy symptoms, like sometimes they faint, um, they vomit from their period. You know, if you can't get out of bed when you have your period because of the pain being so excruciating, that's not normal, okay? You should be able to function as normal on your period and you shouldn't limit you in any way. And even though a lot of people, even with severe period pain like me, would still go to school and do everything, even though you're in extreme pain, it shouldn't be painful like that. You shouldn't have that much pain. If you're rating your pain, you know, four out of 10 or more, that, that's bad. If you're rating your pain seven, eight, nine out of nine, 10 out of 10, you need to see somebody seriously, okay? Because um, when pain is that bad, we need to 
look at ways to try and bring the pain response down. So look, there, there can be pathological causes of period pain. And one of them is endometriosis. And another one is adenomyosis. Okay. Endometriosis is, if um, I'm going to explain what it is. So if you think about your uterus, your uterus has a little, has a lining. Okay. And there are certain cells that make up the lining of your uterus. Now those cells, they should only exist in the lining of your uterus. And so when you have your period, those cells, they break down and then they exit through your body in your period and they come out of your body. What happens in endometriosis is you find cells similar to these, similar to these that are in the lining, you find them outside of the uterus. So you might find them on your ovaries. You might find them on your fallopian tubes. They might be on your bladder, on your bowels, behind your uterus, on your muscles, on your organ. They could be on your liver, your heart, your brain. They could be anywhere. These cells, that they behave in the same way as your uterine lining, which means that they, you know, they, they become inflamed. You know, they, they want to leave your body, but they can't. Okay. So the, the, the lining of your uterus on your period, it leaves your body. But those cells that are everywhere else, they're not leaving your body. They're staying there. They're building up. They're scarring. They're causing adhesion. So they start to stick your organs together. They, um, you know, th this stuff is happening without you realizing inside your body if you have endometriosis. And of course, that's going to be painful. Of course, when you're on the week before your period and your uterus is expanding, okay, because your uterus goes from about the size of your fist to like double. If your uterus is expanding, of course, and you've got all these like adhesions, you know, everything's stuck together and that's stretching, of course, it's going to be painful. And of course, when your period comes, it's going to be painful because those cells are bleeding and, you know, scarring, but they can't leave your body. They stay there. And of course, your periods are going to be painful and they're going to last longer. And then, of course, you're going to get pelvic pain outside of your period too. And then over time, if this builds up and, you know, we have stages of endometriosis, eventually if you get to the stage four endometriosis sometimes and depending on the location of these cells you know a lot of women fight with fertility issues and we know that that can be a huge problem especially within our you know socio-cultural type of you know environment but yeah fertility issues is another problem endometriosis is one of the leading causes of infertility so you know that's another thing to kind of think about oh i have period pain and i have fertility issues maybe it's endometriosis okay and then adenomyosis is where, so remember endo is when it goes outside of your pelvis. Adenomyosis is when those cells grow into the muscles of your um, uterus. So it goes inwards, okay, not outwards like endo. So you can have both endo and adeno, which I did. Or you can have just endo or you can have just adeno. Now, if you have both of them, like, of course, your periods are going to be hell, okay? And adeno is probably more pain, like in terms of period pain itself, adenomyosis is supposedly more painful. So it's important to know these things because um, it means how am I going to address it? How am I going, what do I need to do to take care of myself so that I don't make, so that I'm not in so much pain all the time? Um, and, and this is, the, the work that I do as well is a, a lot about the holistic approach, about what, what you put into your body, what you put on your body, you know, the toxins and stuff in your environment and on your body, you know, skincare, the, you know, the foods that you eat, um, the, the, the homes that you live in, you know, all that sort of stuff. We talk about that and how it affects the body, you know, exercise. Are you doing exercise? Are you doing no? Are you overdoing the exercise? Are you causing more stress and strain on your already stressed out body by doing like high intensity, you know, HIIT exercises and uh, CrossFit and all that sort of stuff when you should be doing yoga, 
Pilates, unwind, you know, just mellow stuff. 10 minutes of exercise instead of two hours of exercise. Do you know what I mean? So educating around that type of stuff um, and, and kind of that holistic thing, bringing in that pelvic floor physio. So in terms of, you know, pure pain, yeah, it could be something pathological like endo or adeno, but then it could also just be what you're eating and the way that you're exercising. It could not be pathological. It could just be like functional. Like, you know, I eat so much bread all the time and my tummy does not like bread and I'm gluten intolerant or something. And if I just stop bread, my pure pain goes away. Do you know what I mean? Like stuff like that, finding out what are your triggers. And then um, it could be, you know, inflammation in your body. So, so, you know, with pure pain, there's a lot of different reasons it could be happening. And it's about getting to the bottom of it. And you don't have to live with severe pure pain. I mean, we could just change it with a couple of herbs and a couple of dietary changes and your, your periods could be so much better. There's things like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, sometimes it could honestly just be a simple fix, but it's up to you to want to go and get it fixed and wanting to just like own up and be like, you know what, this is not normal. I need to stop desensitizing myself to this pain because like I hope whoever's listening to this realizes that yes, period pain is not normal. And I read on your page, you just made a few adjustments. Like you are, now you have like a mainly vegan diet. And then you also said like you do Pilates, you do yoga, you also even do meditation for stress and everything. But I also read that there's this surgery I don't know if you recommend it or not, but it's called, I believe it's like the excision surgery. Do you, are you familiar with that? Is that, is that something you would recommend? Yeah. So if you have endometriosis um, and the endometriosis is active and it's causing um, obviously pain and so on, then yes, you will definitely need to have a laparoscopic um, su- surgery done with an, advanced, with an advanced laparoscopic surgeon who specializes in excision surgery to remove these growths from around your body so that it so that we can stop that inflammation process. So often what we do is in the lead up to surgery, we do we do all the like I guess prehab or pre-op stuff, right? So change your diet, fix your diet, fix your exercise, you know, get your pelvic floor down, do all that stuff before um, the surgery to go, try and get your baseline to as low as possible. So we don't want you going to surgery with this high amount of pain high amount of inflammation, high amount of stress, and bring that right down. And then you go into the surgery, they cut out all that growth. And then after the surgery, you continue on with your lifestyle and dietary changes to stop that endometriosis from growing again. Now, ideally, you should only ever have one surgery done by one excellent surgeon. But unfortunately, today, we are having a lot of girls having had 5, 10, 15 surgeries under a surgeon or, or I, I don't know what happened. Maybe it's just poor understanding of endometriosis, but they've had a lot of surgeries. Like sometimes I have patients that have had 15 surgeries. That is not right. You did not have the right surgery to begin with. And that's, you know, you shouldn't be having that many surgeries because the problem with surgery is that it causes more adhesions. Okay. So you're actually increasing your risk of developing more endometriosis on those scar tissue anyway. So ideally you want to have only one surgery and then, or, or one surgery with one really great surgeon, and then you're doing all the dietary lifestyle. Endometriosis is a holistic. You cannot look at it with surgery is going to fix me. There is no way on earth surgery is going to fix you. Okay. It's just one part of the puzzle. Endometriosis affects you at a multi-system level. So you have to address the pain. You have to address the stress. You have to address the diet. You have to address your abdomen, your pelvis, you know, your mental health, everything. Okay. And, and I, I had the surgery done and it was for me, you know, I had the one surgery with a great surgeon, but before that I did all the diet lifestyle stuff. And after that, I continue all the diet lifestyle stuff. 
Now, um, I don't recommend that everyone follow the same diet that I do. For me, that's what works. Everybody's different. So it's about trying to find what works for you. For some people, it's if I just eliminate dairy, I feel great and that's good. You know, for some people, it's if I have to have a plant-based diet, I cannot have meat. And that's me. If I have even a little bit of meat, I get so constipated. I just can't. So I'm like, you know what? I'm not even going to bother. I'm not going to do that to myself. But everybody's different. Okay. So it's about finding what works best for you. And definitely with pure pain endometriosis, a plant-based approach does work better. Um, and there is some research that shows that a gluten-free approach also works better. Yeah, gluten-free isn't just a phase or a new fad or anything. Oh, absolutely. It actually does help you. Two questions before we move on to like, you know, battling with depression and anxiety. Um, one of them is like, how common is pelvic pain? And how common is endometriosis in women? So pelvic pain as an umbrella term um, to, to define, you know, all the different pains that can occur in your pelvis. Um, they say that it affects about one in five women, but I think it's more. But it, but let's go with 20% of women have some type of pelvic pain. But I, I honestly believe it's more because 20% of women have period pain, right? And honestly, like sometimes it feels like 80% of women have period pain. Yeah. So I don't even know how accurate those statistics are. And endometriosis, um, they say 10% of women have endometriosis. That's one in 10. We all know 10 people. So we all know at least one person with endometriosis. But I think it's more than that, to be honest. Like when I look at you know society today and the amount of women who are, you know, if, if, if like 80% of people are having period pain, like of course, you know, maybe 40% of them are having endo. But from a research base, they say one in 10 have endo, uh, one in five have period pain. And as a pelvic pain in general, they say 20%, but honestly, I think it's more because if you, if you just put period pain, that's already one in five. So it's probably more than that. Yeah, because yeah. somebody asked that because they, they never even heard of it. And that's so interesting. I was, that, I was about to say, yeah. now there's a, they know a term. It's not just PMS or period cramps. There's an actual medical term for it. I think once people do realize that exists, they're going to step forward and say, you know what? I think I might have this. One thing that I wanted to add was that um, the, these statistics are often taken in from white populations. Okay. Now, I went to an Islamic school and we had 30 girls in our class. And I can tell you, that at least five of them had severe period pain. And now when I look back and I contact these girls, every single one of them have endometriosis, right? So that's five out of 30. What's that? That's like, yeah, it's like 20%, right? So or, or it's like a good proportion of the class. Like that's like 20, 25% of people. Like, and that's, so, so what I'm trying to say is I think in our uh, like Arab Indian population, we I feel like it's way more than one in 10. We have endometriosis. Yeah. And in my class, like at least half of the girls have period pain, but like five of them had excruciating severe period pain. And seriously, I contacted them because I just wanted to know. And they all ended up having endo and they were all having fertility issues today, like 20 years on. That makes so, sense. No. You're right, Hibba, because I remember in high school, there was a girl, she had to, she used to have to be escorted out of like the school with a wheelchair when she was on her period. You knew that wow. like, yeah, it was that bad for her. I don't know if she was on her period or approaching her period or whatever, but she, it was around that time in the month for her and she would be escorted. And I felt bad for her because it would be embarrassing because everybody knew why for her it would be embarrassing. But again, it shouldn't be. It's just, it's, it does happen. It's not normal. Like you said, just because it's common, it's not normal, but it would happen. I seen that before. And something that you mentioned earlier that I kind of want to go back to is like I noticed that like when I drink or I have a lot of caffeine, my cramps and my pain that month is insane. So it does impact like your body is 
everything that you consume and everything that you put in your body impacts in ways that you would never even imagine. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, like, for example, that girl that you just mentioned, I would say, I would be like 99% sure she has endometriosis, you know, like, just like that, just that fact that she had to be wheeled out on a wheelchair. Yeah. And if we, I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do here in Australia is get menstrual education into schools. And by menstrual education, um, it's a period pain and endometriosis education program. And we've actually gotten it already statewide in one of the states in Australia. So our aim, hopefully, is to get it across Australia-wide and obviously, hopefully, internationally as well. But, you know, everyone should know. Everybody should know what a healthy period is. Everyone should know what period pain is. Everyone should know what endometriosis is because we all know at least one person that is going to have either of these conditions. And, you know, the first step is to just, yeah, break that stigma, break that taboo, but then we can be the person that could support and help this person as well, you know. We don't have to just sit by and be like, oh, my God, oh, that poor girl. Like, you know, that's not productive. Like, we need to be able to to help and support each other, right? Perfect. I, I definitely agree. And I think that education, especially in younger women, are like, it's so important. And we've we've had guests who are they're trying to do that in Palestine. They're, they're um, we've know. had a guest, yeah, yeah like that's right. Yeah. You know, um, her um, your name is Yasmin. She runs Baby Fist, and I told you this off mic, but that she's trying to start, or she did start a menstrual campaign, like a, a menstrual education campaign, and that's very interesting that she is doing it in Palestine because even here in the states, we're kind of like almost like embarrassed yeah. right Zana? yeah so oh, absolutely in yeah absolutely we have one more question yes yeah. so this uh listener wants to know uh she has a ph imbalance and she's not not sure how to treat it and how to go about finding a solution for that so i'm going to assume by ph imbalance she's talking about her vulva vaginal area being a bit off yeah so the thing about uh vulva ph is that from my experience it's not, it doesn't start at the vulva, okay? It's, it's not the vagina and the vulva that, I mean, it can be, definitely, but it often starts from your mouth and that's the end, right? So it's what you put into your body, what's happening in your digestive tract, what's happening in your gut is super important to what's going to be happening down there. So uh, women who have things like chronic UTIs or thrush, chronic thrush or, um, you know, uh, infections or herpes and all that sort of stuff, um, often it's what's happening in your gut. And a lot of the time, the biggest issue is sugar. When women who have, you know, flora issues down there, if you eliminate sugar out of your diet, and I mean like processed sugar, like processed foods with processed sugars, you know, all that junk, just switch to whole foods, massive difference to your flora, okay? And then also the other thing is some people take probiotics, but with probiotics, um, you have to understand that it's strain specific, okay? So you can't just pop a multi-strain probiotic that you bought off the shelf and expect it to help, okay? You can sometimes if you're lucky, but oftentimes you have to actually get the probiotics to swipe for you, for your gut and for your gut, uh, for your pelvic health issue. So um, sometimes uh, certain strains of probiotics can actually make you worse. And some people notice that they're like, oh my God, I, I get gut, I get like stomach problems or like I get worse thrush or something if I have this probiotic. So that's why working with a trained health professional is really important. The naturopaths and naturopathic doctors um, are really great at being able to help you find the right 
probiotic for your body. But of course, you need to kind of ask around because, I mean, there's, there's good in every profession and there's bad in every profession, okay? And that's with every profession. So yeah, ask around. So look at your gut. The, vagina, the vulva vaginal area is the, the end of the system, okay? The thrush is likely, or, or if, it's, if it, I'm assuming it's thrush, is likely starting in your gut. That's so interesting. We don't really focus on how, what we eat. And no. some, and if she's just recently had that, it must have been some change of diet, something that she's added to her um, diet that she's been eating lately that's causing this. Let's move on to depression and anxiety. This is something that we've touched upon many, many times on our platform, but I think it's something, a conversation that we definitely want to normalize as much as possible. And this is also a topic that, Hiba, you can personally speak on. We definitely don't want to get into certain personal stories or anything like that, but let's just talk about the type of depression that you do have yeah so um depression comes in many different shapes and forms and sizes um and it doesn't always look like the way that you picture it in your mind okay so if someone looks at me and they look at you know all that I've accomplished in my life or whatever like I, I don't live on that stuff I don't really care about that stuff but you know when, if you look at it at face value um, or if you look at, you know, you're listening to me right now and you hear my voice, you're like, oh, yeah, she just, you know, she sounds like she's got it together and all that sort of stuff. That's an assumption that a lot of people make, okay? But unfortunately, we are seeing a rise in mental health issues. And um, I think even in our culture as well, we do, like, especially in cultures who, Eastern cultures, let's just say Eastern cultures, like we don't, um, a lot of Eastern cultures don't accept that mental health issues occur or don't accept upon themselves that they have a mental health issue. I'm going to just make this like really a really blunt statement, but there's a lot of intergenerational trauma that occurs, you know, trauma that has occurred, you know, from, from, you know, your grandparents and their parents and so on that re is retained in the body and passes down into the, your children. Because right now you, you've got the, you've got the DNA of yourself, but then you've got the DNA of your child, of your, any of your daughters and then any of your daughter's daughters. Okay, so your granddaughter's DNA is in your body. So you're, if you're not taking care of your body today, your granddaughter is going to suffer for it. Okay, that's the reality, all right? Because your DNA, is, it's called epigenetics. It's real. At, what's happening to us? And, and, this is, and, and then we have to trace it back. Like our generation, I feel, is really bearing the brunt of a lot of the trauma that occurred at two generations above us. Okay, our, the generation above us and the generation above that. Okay, and that's why we're seeing a massive amount of mental health issues in our generation, especially um, in our Eastern cultures, right? Um, you know, the migrant populations, like they all migrated, they came from war, you know, uh, a lot of that sort of stuff that's kind of retained. And then when you come to this Western country, you then, you don't, you don't know how to act, right? Because you don't have that village to support you. You know, you know you're, you're doing it on your own. And then you put a lot of that pressure and stuff on your kids. Um, because you, you know, it's not the village teaching them anymore. It's just you. And then, you know, all your fears and all of your traumas and stuff pass on to, you know, not just at the epigenetics level, but also at that level. I, I find that a lot of people uh, in my generation, we do have a lot of mental health issues. Some of us acknowledge and some of us don't. Okay. And I'm hoping that the generation after us, we're more, are more acknowledging of it. But a lot of us, we, because we've seen our parents, um, work so hard. Right, a lot of a lot of especially um the you know Arab families yes. right like work so hard <laughs> like Definitely. you know in the factories I don't know why they just like have really laborious jobs yeah we 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 also work hard ourselves even though we might have these mental health issues and so what I'm coming to is something called high functioning depression right so 
you're so functional in society and at home and in life and whatever with your friends, your family, everyone, you're so functional that no one could possibly ever imagine that you could be um, depressed, right? I, my whole life, like, have always had this depression that's always there. It's just always lives inside of me. Like, sometimes I would just, and it might be, and yes, it's definitely aggravated by my menstrual cycle. And because I had so many different things happen around my menstrual cycles, you know, it definitely is aggravated by that. But there are, like, um, yeah, like, I kind of even lose my ability to articulate sometimes, like, because it's so hard to speak about. And I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that is, like, you just have this thing inside you, like it's like inside in your heart um, or in your body and in your gut and stuff. And it's just, it kind of like just chips away at you, you know? And for me personally, I, you know, I kind of lived with it and I was always angry as a, as a kid and I always had headaches and I always had stomach aches. And that's kind of like a sign, you know, to someone that, that, that should be a sign that there's mental health issues happening. Like when you it manifests into physical issues, stomach problems, headaches. I mean, even just thinking about it now, my stomach is starting to make noises, like just thinking about it. You know what I mean? Like mm. it, it's like becomes somatic. You know, it's like psychosomatic, right? But yeah, so you, you, can, you can do all this stuff, but then you have this depression and you still do everything. But what happens, the, the hard thing with high-functioning depression is when when you become low functioning, it's like when something hits you so hard, something, something happens to you that's so bad that even your highly functional self can't take it. And I feel like people who have high functioning depression, when they get hit with that and they, because then you, you stop functioning, like you just stop everything. Like you don't want to eat. I don't want to exercise. I don't want to work. I don't want to look after anyone. I don't want to do anything for myself or for anyone. I just don't want to do anything, right? That, to go from that, like, people don't understand that. They don't understand that and they think that you become lazy or something like that, but it's not. It's like a really, it's like when you something just flips over and you just become so depressed that you can't even do anything. And I mean, I, I'm saying people think you're lazy, but that's that's just the voice in my head. Some, it's just the voice in my head telling me that I'm lazy. But it's you know, it's it's that's what it is. It's like you think everyone's thinking that about you, but you're thinking of it yourself. It's like, what's wrong with me? And and my psychologist even said to me, like, I've been seeing a psychologist for more than five years. But I, when I saw her last time, I'm like, I kept saying that. What's wrong with me? Or something. She's like, stop saying that. Stop saying what's wrong with you. Nothing's wrong with you. You know why you're like this. You know, like you you know, but you, the voices in your head, you can't stop it. It just comes and then you start doing those self-defeating, self-defeating um, thoughts and words and you get angry at yourself and, you know, and then that spirals and it keeps coming on and you keep thinking, you know, and it's like just this language, you know, it's, see, I can't even, I can't even verbalize anymore. It's like, if I think about my professional stuff, I can talk, 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 talk. But as soon as I think about that side of my soul, which is me, it is, it's actually me. That's, that's the true me. Like, all this other stuff is actually the mask. It's the the layers and layers of mask that I've put on over the years to put to put it out there. Like people people think when they see me online that I'm an extrovert. I am the world's biggest introvert on earth. Like literally, oh my god, I don't get. I hate leaving my house. I just like I don't you know I just like sitting at home and you know just chilling. Like 
I don't know. I just have, I can relate. I can relate. It's very hard to experience because I get that all the time, Hibba, where people assume I am the same person I am online On online. It's so much easier to be an extrovert. You want to help people. People are in your DMS. You want to talk to you, but in person, if you meet me, I'm very quiet. I like to be alone. I like to do my own thing. I'd rather choose That's alone time yeah. than to be out. If that makes sense. And it's, it, it doesn't make sense to other people, but to me it does. Like I want to be alone offline. So I, I can definitely relate to you, relate with you on that. <laughs> So, so when true. you become like low functioning, how do you pull yourself out of that? How do you go back to your normal routine? Do you like take time off work or do you just self-care? How do you, how do you do that? Really hard to snap out of it. Like it is it's so hard. <laughs> I don't even know. But it's um, because, I've, because I've been through it, like I have hit low functioning a few times in my life. And this, this time, so this time it happened to me about a year ago wasn't the I guess it was really bad but it wasn't the worst but it was it was really bad okay it was really bad but I've had one that was much worse before so you have to start with little things that you know work so for me I know and I have to force myself so what happened was I started when I get into this really bad depression I start to get a lot more pain as well my pain starts coming back and the one motivator for me is pain I hate being in pain it kills me. Like, I just, I'm like, I'm so sick of being in pain. I'm like, I don't want to be in pain anymore. So I know for me, if I start doing Pilates or yoga, it helps with my pain. And that's exercise, right? So I started by just going to Pilates once a month. Like, I mean, that's really extreme, but I started like, I started once and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll book in for a fortnight. Okay. You know, and, and, and I kind of do it like that. Like you start slow with the things that, you know, help. Okay. So for me, it's that. The other thing is eating. Like for me, I stop eating. That's, that's a problem too, right? Like eating bad is bad, but not eating is worse. Okay. You need to eat something. So I, I stop eating. So like, then I'm like, okay, eat, eat a bit healthy. Like I just make sure that I have a breakfast at least. I, in the morning, I have like a gluten-free toast with nut butter or something like that, just to get some protein, whatever. So eating healthy, a little bit of exercise. And for me, I started seeing my psychologist again. So I, I took, I think I took a year off where I didn't see my psychologist because I was doing really well. Um, and then, and I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed it. I was like in control, like, you know, whatever. But also I got busy because I had just had my daughter. Like that's the other thing, like when you're postnatal, like, so I started seeing my psychologist again on a weekly basis to start, you know, these, these negative thoughts and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, like you got to do little things, food, exercise, psychology, prayer, worship all of that stuff is really important little bit and don't feel bad if you can't do it and that's that's the, that's the hardest thing for me is the guilt complex like oh my guilt complex is just crazy like I just have like for example like cleaning the house you know <laughs> you you'll sit there and you'll just like be like okay I gotta clean the house oh my god okay I wake up in the morning I gotta clean the house think about all the things you need to do the day and clean the house is always there and you just feel guilty if you haven't done it and then it's like, okay, avoid it, avoid it, avoid it, feel guilty a bit more. And like just that constant cycle of guilt, it's like you force yourself to feel guilty. It's like you live in a cycle of guilt. That's what I feel like sometimes. It's like I could do it and get it out of the way. Like the other thing is like sometimes like answering my patient emails, I could answer them on the day they – like I, I can answer them the day after work or I would drag it out right until the day before work. Like that is a big problem with me, <laughs> just <laughs> living in that constant stress, guilt cycle. For some reason, my body likes to be 
like guilty. It likes feeling guilty. It likes feeling stressed out. And I don't know, but it's so easy to, because I tried it once. I tried answering all my emails the day after work. And then for the rest of the week, I felt amazing. But I, I relate to that because like, I feel like stress keeps me going. Like it's a motivator. Do you know what I mean? Because when you're not stressed, when you have nothing to motivate, you're like, eh, I just not I'll just chill at home today but like when I have something to do like when I the days that I work I'm up at like 6 30 I'm like out of the door I'm doing all these things but like the days that I have off I am lazy I have nothing to do like so I I understand that completely um I want to move on to migraines so um I know you said that you experienced migraines as early as the age of four um but before we get into that can you just explain what the difference between a migraine and a headache is because I think there's some confusion I always wondered yeah um, so a headache is kind of the global term that's used to define any pain in your head, neck kind of region, facial, anything like that. Um, a migraine is a little bit more different in that you get disturbances. So like um, some people will see, they'll have an aura, not everyone, some people do, um, where they might like, for example, I see like I, I black out a bit in one side of my vision or I see sparkling lights or like um, dots in the sky or like something, you just have this like, visual disturbance right um and then people with migraines can't tolerate um sounds smells and and sights so like bright lights forget about it loud noises no smells smells can be really 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 overwhelming um and you might get nausea like the longer your migraine goes with these stimulants you can get like nausea some people actually vomit as well um so uh, and, and sometimes you get like ringing in your ears, like a really sharp pounding ringing in your ears. Um, it's very overwhelming. It can be one-sided or it can be both-sided or it can shift between sides as well. But yeah, it can be really, really overpowering. And a migraine, like I have been through, I think I've been through every single headache there is out there. And um, a migraine is certainly the worst of them all. Like migraines kill me. Like if I have a migraine, sometimes I just, I like, I know this is bad to say, but sometimes I, I really, I get, I feel suicidal. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't bear this, this, this pounding in my head. Like it's really bad. You described my symptoms to a T because I do have migraines and it, it's always on my right side and I cannot stand like just talking to anybody, being around anybody. I need to be in a closed room, quietness, With everything. With light off, yeah. Yeah, and it, it has happened recently. Like I've never always had migraines in my entire life. It's just happened maybe in the last few years. What do you think triggers migraines? And I, is it stress? Is stress one of the major causes? Could that be it? Absolutely. Stress is definitely a huge cause. And I know for me it is because my migraines have come back in the last year and I hadn't had migraines for ages before that. Um, stress is definitely a big one, but it could be even things like um, a really loud noise or really bright light or a really strong smell. Like it's it's very sensory. Okay, that's the thing about migraines. It's a very sensory experience. Um, it could be like the layers, like a layers of stress, and then this really horrible smell. You know, like something like that. The other thing is that migraines can also are kind of if, if think of headaches like a continuum. You, have, you can have like a, you know, a very mild, like just a pain in the back of my head and then the continuum with the migraine at the end, okay? Most people don't get migraines and um, migraines are, you know, you know when you have a migraine. Some people say, oh, I have a migraine, but they really mean headache. Migraines are horrible. Like you literally need to be in a quiet, dark, no smell room. Like you can't even be outdoors. It's just too much. Like I can't drive. If I, if I know I'm going to get a migraine, if, I, if I'm driving, oof. 
or it'll be at night, whoa, it'll be horrible. Um, but if you think of it as a continuum, migraine at the end, I find that some people can be triggered from a basic headache into a migraine. Um, so it could be even things like posture, like the way that you're sitting at your desk. Like right now, um, uh, you're sitting kind of turned to the side and you're turned to the right. So you might be impinging on your right joints. Do you know what I mean? So it could even be things like posture, the way that you hold yourself. You know, you always kind of tip your head to the right. It could be things like that. So what I actually found is that um, it's good to actually go and see uh, a musculoskeletal orthopedic physical therapist or an osteopath or a chiropractor, somebody who works in that to kind of um, see what's happening around your neck and even your ribs, like what's happening in your neck and your rib area. Because um, sometimes it could be you're compressed in your neck or your rib and then it causes you to get tight in your neck and the, the bottom of your head and then the bottom of your head gets locked up and then you, that drags out and then eventually it becomes a migraine. So like stop it before it gets to that point of migraine. So yes, migraines can be definitely like, you know, externally triggered by like sight, smell, sound and stress and whatever, but it could also be musculoskeletally driven as well because you end in that continuum. So yeah, like for me personally, migraines definitely stress, but one of the big ones is rib issues for me. Like my ribs, like I, I um, because I work in a position where I have to bend over a lot, my ribs get quite compressed and sometimes if I have to carry my daughter who's very heavy um, and if I've carried her for like two or three minutes straight, my ribs will compress and then I will get a headache that will eventually turn into a migraine. So it's kind of like find what it is and try and address as, as much as you can so you don't end up in that migraine. That's so interesting. I never thought your actual like physical body can, right, yeah. Your head. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because you know what's so interesting other than like, like you said, the sensory ones for, I always, it never fails. I never fail to have a migraine on the Eid on like every, you know how it's twice a year we have Eid. I always have to go home early from like our morning festivities because it is, it's like when you go to the prayer and mashallah, we come from a, a large Muslim community. So it's, there's so many people, so many sounds everybody's talking everybody's meeting each other I always 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 have to like my parents and my family know they always have to make the pit stop before their next morning festivity like like following the the rest of the day's festivities because they know I have to go home because I do get a really terrible I migraine like at weddings I stopped it yeah, yeah and weddings as well but, but also around my periods like right before I get my period I get really bad migraines like right above my eyes but I just want to add on that is like what happens on Eid? The night before, you don't get enough sleep. Mm-mm. Now, remember, when you sleep, that's when your nerves are regenerating. That's when your hormones are regenerating, especially between 10 a.m. and 2, uh, 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So if you haven't had a good sleep in them, your, your body is not regenerating as well. So you have less sleep, then you wake up early, and then you go into this highly stimulating environment, right? Like you haven't eaten anything either, usually, because you haven't eaten all night. And then you go and you eat sweets, and then you hear very loud people, um, lots of colors, right? Lots of lights sometimes and smells like if there's food out there for sure. Yeah. It's very, it's some um, neurostimulating. But um, in terms of menstrual migraines, so yes, they, they, they can, uh, menstrual migraines are a form of PMS. Okay. So that's a type of PMS, premenstrual syndrome. Um, and, and menstrual migraines occur because of the large drop that occurs in progesterone just before your period. Okay. Because at, at, at your period, your progesterone is very low. But in the week before, there's like a drop, okay? And that drop is what stimulates that um, menstrual migraine. And so what I usually find with PMS-related migraine, um, you actually want to boost your progesterone as much as you can in that two weeks before your period so that you don't get that sudden drop of progesterone. You want it to be more of like a, 
a smooth, gradual, slopey drop rather than a very sharp cliff drop, right? Um, and some people might find like, and you might have heard of this, like people take this thing called Vitex or Chase Tree or Chase Berry. It's like a herb. And they take it in the week or so before their period and often it'll prevent them from getting a menstrual migraine. You don't get that sudden drop because Vitex makes your progesterone a bit higher in your body. You're right, Hiba. I believe our last guest, um, she talked about Vitex and how it has helped her because I believe she had PCOS and it helped her with her fertility issues and everything wow, like that. Yeah. yeah, so it works for some people. It might not work for others. We actually also had a listener question, but I think you've already answered it. <laughs> and I'm very careful about using this word, but she did use this word. But she's like, I have been struggling with constant headaches for two years now. Is that normal? So we know, obviously, obviously it's not, not normal. Yeah. Yeah, so, so it's identifying what type of headache it is. So there's migraine headaches and then there's cervicogenic headaches, which is when your neck is jammed. Like the, the skull is jammed right off on the top of your um, the neck bones. That can happen. So it'd be best for her to see a um, like a, phys- a physical therapist that works in with headaches or a chiropractor or an osteopath and just get your neck looked at. Because if it's been going on for that long consistently, it sounds like it's musculoskeletal driven usually. Um, And the other thing that it could be is, and this is what happened to me, I had an epidural spinal done for when I gave birth to my daughter. Um, This is something to keep in the back of your mind if you have headaches or migraines that has happened from after having children or having a a procedure that involves a spinal or an epidural. And she, um, the anesthesiologist, the person that did the spinal tap, pierced my dura she pierced it so what happened was my spine was leaking out cerebrospinal fluid and when that happens if every time you sit or stand up it you, you know your spine compresses and it pushes out the fluid from your your cerebrospinal fluid basically and um and then that gives you a headache so I was like oh my god I ha- that headache was horrific but honestly I couldn't tell the difference between that headache and a migraine so I thought it was a migraine but they told me that that's this called a spinal headache is the worst headache anyone could ever get. So I'm just thinking, oh, if that's the worst headache anyone could ever get, well, I would get migraines like all the time and they feel exactly like the spinal headache. But yeah, what well, if you've had a procedure done that involved a spinal tap or an epidural, just keep that in mind that sometimes you can be leaking for, and this actually happened to a girl that I met that had a procedure done as well. And for two years, either one or two years, she had to lie down flat because every time she sat down or stood up, she would be leaking her spinal fluid and no one figured it out until two, one or two years later. So for a whole year, she laid down flat. So I mean, these are rare things obviously that occur, but they happen. It happened to me. Like, you know, so yeah, just keep that in the back of your mind. It's crazy how we normalize pain. Like we just like, oh, it's just a headache and we like brush it off. But like pain always stems from something bigger. There's always a reason for your pain. So like we have to stop brushing it off. What are some at-home remedies that we could do, um, Hiba, like before we end this? Like, because I know some people like really do care, like have these migraines, have these headaches. What are some things that we could do before we go to the doctor's office? Like, is it changing eating habits, um, doing things that are less stressful? What could it be? With migraines, so yeah, foods can definitely be a trigger. So for me, dairy. If I have dairy, I will get a migraine. Okay, so find find the food triggers. Um, Do a food diary and see, like, do write what foods you eat and see what symptoms you have. And notice, like, if you do that five days in a row, you might say, you know, every time I have yoga, I get a migraine. Do you know what I mean? So, like, look, look at it. Look at your food diary. You know, you can do things like food elimination. But it's often if you've had a long time that you've had pain or headaches or pelvic pain or any type of pain, work with a health professional um, that specializes in that area, okay? Because, you know, 
they will see things that you don't. Okay. So like for me, I see a lot of things that a lot of people don't see. And the, the reason is because I've been through a lot myself, but also I have that eye. I will try and understand what is happening at a holistic level in this woman's body. Right. So, um, yeah, with migraines, what else can you do? The other thing that often works is taking a migraine preventer. So this is what I did years back that helped me stop. Like I used to get migraines like four times a week. So I went from four times a week to no migraines for an entire year being on this low dose migraine preventer. So the, the low dose preventative medication, you take it every day um, at night before bed. And it just keeps your nervous system in a state of relaxation almost. Like it kind of brings everything down so you're not in that high stress sort of really wound up sort of situation. Um, and that, that worked really well for me. So I would highly recommend you speak to your doctors about something like that. Um, and then, of course, there's triptans, which you can take when you have a migraine attack. They, you take it, but sometimes you, might, you miss the window and so it doesn't work at all. So it's very variable. The best thing is actually to prevent it. And yet food, look, the usual that we hear all the time, what you eat, how you move. So exercise is super important as well. And, you know, if it is musculoskeletal, if it's jammed up, see someone, chiro, osteo, physio, somebody that can help release the pressure in your neck uh, or in your ribs if it's in your ribs as well. You've given us so, so many helpful tips on so many different topics. And we just really, really want to thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Where can our followers find you online? So you can find me on Instagram at the pelvic expert. Um, I'm also on other social media, same thing, the pelvic expert, but I'm not really that active anymore. And part of that is because of what's been happening with me in the last year. Um, but I am kind of slowly coming out of it, hopefully inshallah. on the rise, but we'll see, inshallah. And um, what else? Um, and then my website or my blog. So I have um, my awareness blog, which is thepelvicexpert.com. And then my personal um if you want to book a consult with me but I, I don't know if anyone listening is from australia but if you are in sydney and you want to book a consult with me i'm also at hebashahid.com thank you thank you so much again it takes a lot to talk about certain personal stories such as your depression and anxiety but we want to help thank you so much for helping us and helping other women that are listening Absolutely. to this that are dealing with these certain things and they don't know how to treat it or like you said they might think it's normal just because it's common and it's not so once more thank you Heba. um you're amazing and inshallah our listeners can actually benefit from your blog your website and your personal page definitely Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been so much fun. Thank you. Welcome back to our unfiltered afterthoughts. I feel like I'm so in tune with my body. Like I know what's going on inside. Things that I never... Like, I just never thought of. I never even realized there's a, such a thing as a pelvic floor and what it houses. And where does period pain come from? You guys, PMS, these freaking memes and all this stuff that deterred us and like made me think that PMS only happens when you're on your period. It's not. I never like knew that. In movies and TV shows, it's just what we've been taught. So I think it's also like in our heads, like when we have our Engraved. periods, we're thinking like, oh, I'm supposed to be moody. I'm supposed to have like these 
ups and downs of like my irritation levels and all that so like it's like psychological i think because like it's mind-blowing it's a lot of misinformation but i also find it very very important you guys for us women especially when it comes to our health we really have to take care of our health and i think sometimes we got to step outside the box and we can't just stick to our primary doctor they're amazing but you have to see specific specialists for specific parts of your body and that's what you need to do and i think we do need to go ahead and this is like off topic but get mammograms get pap smears i feel like most of us are too shy to get you know book those appointments and get that done but this is our body you want to prevent certain things from happening from escalating and i think as women we're always so busy we're always in this like hustle and bustle of you know going to work taking care of the kids keeping the house tidy but even our bodies go through so much as women you know what i mean like we have our periods at the age of 11 we you know have to go through childbirth we go through menopause like our bodies go through so much and it's so important to know what's going on inside of us what about that interesting point how she said that depression is actually part of your dna sometimes that, that yeah i was like that is and she's like it's proven like it's not she's like it's not something i'm just saying she's like it is proven but that we talk about like um trauma that trickles, trickles down, down yeah. but it's that trauma that's now part of our dna because of our ancestors and i was blown away when she said that i was like wow that's just I never would have ever imagined that. So it's selfish of us not to take care of our bodies because we have to think of our daughters and our granddaughters and our great granddaughters who will have that body composition passed down to them because of the choices that we've made. She did say, yeah, we can stop it. Like we can go and take care of ourselves. So when we do have children there, they should be fine and they can be taken care of. And I, I, I think we need more episodes like these because I don't think you and I are the only ones. And I, like I said, when we asked our um, supporters, like, hey, do you guys have questions for her? So many people asked so us questions. So many people asked. That means we're all like very much so like we don't know what exactly too much about our bodies or we don't even have the time to go and educate ourselves sometimes about our bodies. But we do need to prioritize our health. And it's something on. that, yeah, we didn't even learn in school. Like Duny and I, we both went to college and even at a higher education level, we still didn't learn these things, which is so disappointing. It is disappointing, but it's going to take a lot of years to like trying to change the school system and provide more education like this, because I think that's what she wants to try to do. Because, I mean, like we said, we went to like Robert Crown. They teach you about your body, but she's like, do they teach you about period pain and like pelvic pain and like pelvic floor and all that? No, they don't. And I mean, that sucks because like now as an adult, we don't know. Like this is the first time we had somebody sit in front of us and educate us about our body, about that specific part too. And that's why I love doing what we do because not only are we teaching our listeners things, but we're also learning things for ourselves. And um, that's why like podcasts and social media, these are when those platforms come into such, they have such a great role in our, in our society because they're teaching us things, they're putting us into... Um, connection with information that I don't think we would have known otherwise. Again, you can use your platform for good, like you said, Zaina, and in it's it's who you follow be conscious of who you follow and i'm so glad we came across the pelvic expert this is somebody that i've been watching her stuff watching her um like little snaps and stuff like that and i was like we definitely need her on she's somebody that is going to help benefit our listeners with so much wisdom in regards to our body because i do feel like we do need to be more in tune with our health and wellness as women absolutely i agree as always thank you guys so much for listening thank you guys so much for following us and Keeping uh, keeping on pace with our journey through podcasting. Absolutely. Remember to subscribe, send this podcast to your friends and family, and uh, leaving a five-star review would be incredible. It would. So see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.